from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Chris Graves and Jason Newlin. Jason is an investigator with the Leon County State's Attorney's Office in Tallahassee, Florida. He was integral in ultimately solving this complex case. Episode 22, the case of the hardworking husband, the wicked widow, and the alligator alibi. Growing up, Mike Williams always had dreams, but not the kind most kids wish for. He didn't aspire to go to space or be a famous actor. Mike's goals were much more grounded He hoped for a stable career, a loving wife, and a beautiful home. Perhaps his rather unassuming wants stemmed from his humble beginnings. Mike's father was a Greyhound bus driver. His mother worked at a daycare. The Williams family lived in a double-wide trailer outside of Tallahassee, Florida. All the while, Mr. and Mrs. Williams squirreled away money, hoping to save enough to help Mike and his brother with their educations. Throughout high school, Mike earned straight A's, played on the football team, and worked after school at a grocery store. Through all his hard work, Mike did manage to find some time for girls. Enter Denise. Tall and blonde, Denise was a cheerleader, the perfect counter to Mike, the football player. One night after a winning game, Mike got up the courage to ask Denise out. Both were sporty and popular, and they were the envy of everyone in school. Mike also had a best friend, Brian Winchester. Like Mike, Brian played on the football team and had a serious girlfriend, Kathy. The two couples became a tight foursome which continued into adulthood as they all stayed in the Tallahassee area. In 1994, Mike and Denise got married just a few months after Brian and Kathy. Five years later, Mike and Denise welcomed a daughter. Mike worked as a property appraiser while Denise stayed home. Mike loved his wife, he loved his life. At 31, he couldn't help but feel proud. All of his dreams had seemingly come true. Here's Chris. 
Mike worked really hard to maintain his dream life. As a property appraiser, he raked in about 200 grand a year, which is quite a lot of money. But that money came with a cost. To earn that money, Mike felt he needed to work insane hours. And I think he actually probably just loved to work. He would go into the office before dawn. He'd work all day, come home. He'd make dinner. And then once Denise and his child were asleep, he would go to work more. It was so bad that his boss had to take away the office keys so that Mike wouldn't come in on the weekends, apparently. And while Denise liked her comfortable lifestyle, it not surprisingly took a toll on their relationship. So Jason, what can you tell me about Mike? Everything you said is, is 100% accurate. He, he worked too hard, but he also loved Denise to no end. On those days where he'd be at work on a regular day, middle of the day, Denise would run out of gas. She needed gas, she called the office, Mike would stop waiting for him. He'll help her fill up with gas. Everybody in that office talked about their relationship and how he would bend over backwards to keep her happy. Did Denise ever express to Mike that he was working too much in her viewpoint? Did hear some rumors throughout the investigation from everybody that knew both sides that his work damaged the relationship as much as it helped provide for it. Him not being home as a young cop, I wanted to work. I wanted to work because I wanted to promote and I wanted to move up in this career and it was fun. Mike's parents worked to provide for the kids. And Mike was going to do the same thing. He was going to provide for her and provide for Ansley or provide for their children. She was working as a stay-at-home mom. She didn't have to work because he was so successful. I, I truly don't believe he felt like he was doing wrong. And I don't think she ever conveyed to him, hey, I need you here. I'd rather you be home. On December 16th, 2000, Mike and Denise were planning on celebrating their sixth wedding anniversary. They're going to enjoy a weekend away in the small fishing town of Apalachicola, about 90 minutes from their home. Mike had a lot to look forward to. He and Denise had talked about starting to try for baby number two on the trip, something Mike was eager for. That morning, Mike wanted to go on a quick duck hunting expedition, which had become his favorite pastime. He figured he would have time to hit the water, hunt for a bit, and then make it back for their romantic getaway. Mike left at dawn, telling Denise he'd be back in a few hours. But by noon, there was no sign of him. Nervous, Denise called Mike's best friend, Brian. She asked if he could go and check on Mike's hunting spot. Of course, he wanted to help, and so Brian and his father drove about an hour to Lake Seminole, which is where Mike always hunted. On their way to the lake, Brian and his father noticed that local law enforcement was out looking for Mike. When the pair arrived, they immediately joined the search. Quickly, Mike's truck was located in its usual spot. Shortly after, a helicopter found Mike's boat drifting in the lake. His shotgun was sitting undisturbed in the hull, but there was no sign of Mike. Here's Chris. Jason, what do you know about what happened immediately after Mike went missing? So here's where... My career actually takes an interesting path with this case. I started with the Fish and Wildlife Commission in 2002. So when I was in the academy, we had the instructors roll through and the first responder on this case, Alton Renew, was one of my instructors in the academy. The case was less than 18 months old when we started the academy. And uh, he talked about this case. So I knew about the case back 19 years ago, shortly after it happened. But in a situation like this, they responded to a missing duck hunt. I happened to respond to those myself later in my career. A man fell overboard. It's cold. You know, you're going to search. You hope you find them alive. And you're going to search for a couple of days. And then at some point, you know it's cold. And when it's cold, it takes people a little bit longer to surface after they drown than when it's warm. So in these situations, it's usually a couple of weeks. Everybody talked about Mike being an avid duck hunter and avid outdoorsman and understanding the water. This was his little special place to go hunt. You know, some people can survive. We have TV shows about it now. That's what everybody was hoping was happening at the time. Ten days after he's gone missing, they find his hat floating on the water, which is about two weeks after, like you were saying, you would hope that you'd find his body. But in this case, they just found his hat. It was assumed at first that Mike had drowned in the lake. You know, it's cold. He might have fallen. Maybe he couldn't get himself back into the boat. The area of the lake Mike was last seen was about six to eight feet deep. 
but Mike was wearing wading boots, so the fear was that maybe when he fell in the water, his boots filled up. Waders and wading boots, there's a slight misconception as to what they actually are. So they're almost like a full overall. They go all the way up above your waist to your chest, and then they'll snap across your shoulders like overalls. They initially suction cut to you. When you get in the water, they just, they just grab hold of you and keep the water out. But if you get too far in the water, they'll crest over the top of it and then just start to fill you up. And there's no coming out of it because the suction effect is the same trying to pull them off as it is to put them on and especially under the water. And so that's a duck hunter's worst nightmare is to fall over in their waders because you fill up, even a life jacket's not going to keep you up. That was a fear of everybody's. They thought that's what might have happened to Mike? They did. So FWC, they're a wildlife enforcement agency. Investigating crimes and homicides is not their forte. They went looking for a missing boater. If you don't find them immediately and your helicopter doesn't see you know, something suspicious, then you kind of just call it a day come back out when the sunshine comes up tomorrow. I've been lucky enough to fly in the helicopters and locate subjects in situations like this, and you can find them from the air. And if they're not there, something is suspicious. And this water was six to eight feet deep in certain places, but in other places it was one to two feet deep, and there were stumps that were just at the edge of the surface, you know, two to three inches. You hold out hope, but after a while you have to change course. You call it FNW, Fish and Wildlife? It's the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. They were the initial law enforcement unit that responded to Mike. It wasn't like a homicide unit from the police department or anything. There was no homicide unit that responded. This was merely a missing person, a missing voter. And most agencies, particularly in the county that this one occurred in, in Jackson County, their sheriff's offices were small and they don't have a lot of water. So they don't have a lot of water resources. Fish and wildlife, that's what we did. We had every piece of equipment you could think of needed for a water search and rescue, water mission, whatever it may be, to include helicopters. In this North Florida region, Leon County is one of the few agencies, small sheriff's office that actually has helicopters outside of a statewide agency. Okay, so two weeks, generally a body would surface, but a body doesn't in this case. What are you thinking? I mean, this isn't normal, right? When a body goes down, it doesn't move. We've heard cases where they're in a river and the body goes down and you find it within feet of where the drowning occurred. They don't move. And that's why you have a boat, it maybe drifted, maybe the wind blew it. But in this situation, you would have expected something to show up, right? or at least see it by helicopter. After two to three weeks, something should be visible by then. So if this is gator infested water, there's big gators in that area. Maybe that's what happened. They got hungry and fed them because gators generally eat when it's warm. The day Mike and them went hunting was warm. The day the search and rescue started, cold. You still know. So the prevailing theory after the body didn't show up was that he might have been eaten by an alligator. In the interviews that we did on this case, I think I kind of figured out where it started. And I do believe it started at the law enforcement level. The reason they couldn't find Mike was that he was consumed by an alligator. Totally feasible by the side of the alligators in that lake. I mean, they're monsters. There's record breakers that come up in, in the lakes and rivers in that general area. The alligator theory just spread and continued to spread. And I think some others started to feel a little relief that, okay, we've got a story, we're going to stick to it. It colored the investigation too, probably for quite a while. Yeah, it put a damper on any type of investigation. Even when you talk to experts, they will tell you that alligators don't generally eat when it's cold, but they will. As law enforcement in Northern Florida, is the theory that involves an alligator far-fetched? Alligators are involved in a lot of cases in Florida generally. In North Florida, we don't have a whole lot of them. We do have plenty of alligators up here, but I don't know if the interaction with them is different or what. Generally, the interaction humans have with alligators ends up in a limbness or a bite. You don't normally see the whole body consumed. What kind of decision goes into when a search could be continued or scaled back? from a law enforcement standpoint? A lot of it depends on, you know, conditions, preparations, survivability, what, what's the length of time that you'd expect somebody to survive, to survive in those situations. Uh, this one, I actually think the search and rescue went on a little longer than most would. It was up to three weeks of a rescue mission before it was scaled back slightly to a search and recovery mission. What are you feeling when you hear a story like this? Face value, this is a tragedy. This guy went hunting, fell out, 
and didn't make it. While Denise kept a low profile during the search, when she heard it was called off, she feared for the worst. Denise planned a memorial service where Mike's closest friends and family gathered to say goodbye. It seemed like Denise was hoping to close this tragic chapter of her life. However, there was one person who could not accept that Mike had drowned, his mother, Cheryl. Cheryl knew her son Mike was an avid hunter who knew how to take care of himself out in the wilderness. And even if he had drowned, where was his body, Cheryl wondered. She started a grassroots campaign, handing out flyers, paying for billboards and TV ads, all demanding answers. Here's Jason. Cheryl is relentless. She did not stop her pursuit of closure in this case. Cheryl, she knew her son. I have to tell this story at this point because it fits best. When Mike first got into duck hunting, he was about 14 years old. And they had a family friend who took him out duck hunting for the first time. And it was immediate that Mike was hooked. Their family friend knew that, all right, he's 14. I'm going to be taking him with me for a while, but I'm going to teach him a few of the safety measures that he needs to know for duck hunting. One of the things that he taught him, the family had a pool in their backyard, Mike and Cheryl. And this guy actually spent time with him learning how to get out of waders if you fell in the water in the pool. And he said, by the end of about two days of working on it, you knew how to shed them down to a certain part of your body where you could at least get your hands going and get floating and go back to the top, at least catch a breath. Because he taught him you can get the waders off if you're completely under the water. But if you're on the top of the water trying to shed them and panicking, they don't come off. Cheryl knew he knew that because she watched him do that. And it was something she required him to do before he was going to keep duck hunting when he was 14, 15, 16 years old. And then eventually he went and started duck hunting by himself. And for 16, 17 years, he duck hunted numerous times and never had any issues. She knew his anniversary was coming up. She knew he was talking about having you know, more of a family. And he was just happy living a good life that he ran duck hunting. He was going to come home He was because he had somewhere to be that afternoon in Apalachicola. And it just did not sit well with him. When he didn't show up, when... We didn't find the body with the searches. She always thought she was going to find him alive. That was always her hope, which, granted, it would be all of us. And, and I think deep down she knew the worst, but she always knew she was going to find him, and she wasn't going to stop until she did. For years, she would walk the side of Thomasville Road, one of our busiest streets in Tallahassee, and she would hold signs up on the anniversary. She would put newspaper ads, and, where is he, have you seen him, and never let the town forget. She never stopped. She wrote letters to the governor. I think it was every day. It was like a five-year period. She wrote almost 1,800 letters until the case was opened as a criminal investigation by FDLE. And we have all those letters. She was going to get her point across, and she did. She was just going to be a champion for her son and listen to her intuition. And So Denise was a once stay-at-home mom, and now how is she supporting herself without this hard-working husband? Well, it turns out that 19 days after Mike disappeared, Denise petitioned to have him declared dead so she could collect his life insurance policy to the tune of $1.75 million. That's quite a sum. Mike was smart and thoughtful family man, so he had set up a policy with his friend Brian's firm that would ensure that his wife and daughter would be taken care of. So Jason, people don't take kindly to life insurance policies in these types of situations. How was the community feeling about Denise at this point? Those who knew them closely, and I will say this to include her sisters and brother-in-law, thought something was up. They didn't like the way that things went the day he went missing. And then when she files for declare him deceased, 19 days later, there's still people searching for him. And she's filing to declare and deceased and then collects a $1.75 million life insurance policy. Red flags went up everywhere. The life insurance, I think it triggered a lot of people to flip from poor Mike went missing to something happened to Mike. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Is there anything specific detectives look at when a large life insurance policy payout is involved? Yes, we do. First thing, you know, when was it created? How much was it for? Was it changed? Was it renewed? Was it adjusted in any way? Who the recipients are? Was the recipient added? Was the recipient removed? And in this situation, who created it? You look at all of it. How often are life insurance policies involved in cases that you're investigating? I actually have one right now. That is a triple homicide investigation that a life insurance policy is involved in. And it's eerily similar in the time frame of when it was created, who it was created for, and who created it. Still a pending case. We have a really good idea, but you definitely go there. In 2004, after Mike's mother Cheryl's continued pleas, the case was reopened. The biggest thing police found this time around was that the leading theory about how Mike died did not add up. It turns out there was no way alligators could have been the culprit. In December, when Mike disappeared, with the temperatures in the 50s, alligators were hibernating. They would not come out to feed until temperatures hit around 88 degrees. This case is a perfect scenario of this is Florida. It was about 70, 78, I don't know, it was hot the day before this case occurred, or the day this case occurred. And then a storm rolled through and it was in the 30s, less than 24 hours later. It's Florida, it'll rain on one side of the railroad tracks and not on the other. The weather, you know, determining when wildlife are gonna eat, that's hard to predict too, because none of it's predictable down here. But also I think Cheryl did talk to like an expert, right? Who kind of came in with that theory? Cheryl talked to everybody she could think to talk to. She truly felt that the story of alligators was told to her to appease her. This is the best answer we can give. I'm sorry, I don't have any more, but the best answer I can give you is it's probably an alligator. And she looked at her own research and said, she, she found somebody that said, alligators aren't going to come feed in 32 degree weather. But the case was reopened, correct? That's when you came in, right? In about 2010 is when I came around. Right so the case is being passed on to the next guy, trying to find answers. Denise, Mike's former wife, is moving on with 
his best friend Brian. Five years after his disappearance, Denise and Brian got married. Brian even moved in to what was once his best friend's house. While the rumor mill was in overdrive, the police didn't have a body, so the investigation was an uphill battle and the case was closed again. When they got married, the rumor mill said overdrive is an understatement. I think even some of the true believers that believe Mike that it's just an accident changed their opinion. I think there was maybe one or two people that still believe this was an accident at that point. When Brian and Denise got married, it was a big shift. In 2007, per his family's request, Denise returned all of Mike's guns to them. However, Mike's brother noticed that one gun was missing. Through a court order, Mike's family was able to retrieve that gun from Denise. The looming question was why she had kept it. Around the same time, the case was reopened again. But this time, police found something that they, unlike that supposed alligator, could finally sink their teeth into. Everybody started looking at the insurance policy. Something didn't match up. It wasn't a whole lot that we could work with, but it was something is off here. Why do we have an insurance that was getting ready to expire? Payment was made. A lot of suspicious activity on one particular insurance plan. In the end, the 1.75 million divided amongst three different policies. It just looks suspicious. I assume when you went to look at who helped Mike with that insurance policy, that rang alarm bells too, right? Yeah, you could go try and interview Brian. Good luck. Everybody has the right to remain silent. This guy, he had an ability to do so. Brian, his best friend, who's now married to his widow, is the one who helped with the life insurance policy, right? He is. There was also an unearthed 911 call from before the disappearance. Someone reported what they thought was an abandoned car in a church parking lot. Police looked up the plates and the car belonged to Brian. They called his wife and she said Brian was out of the state that week for work. When cops arrived to the church, the car was gone. And it was believed that Brian and Denise were hooking up in that car. Do you have anything to say about that or no? 19 years later, I called that off and she remembered it like yesterday. Called her and talked to her. She goes, yeah, it was at the church off Mississippi in Capitol Circle. I remember it. It was a suburban. She remembered it. She goes, I knew then that something was up. While the nature of the grieving widow and best friend's relationship began to unravel, so did the current state of their marriage. After 11 years together, Denise filed for divorce. She cited Brian's sex addiction as the main cause of their separation. Brian was desperate and angry, and one morning he broke into Denise's car. As Denise drove to work, Brian popped up and attacked her. He held Denise at gunpoint for hours, begging her to stay with him. Denise was finally able to calm him down and de-escalate the situation she got him out of her car. Although Denise promised Brian in the moment that she wouldn't go to the police, and in fact had no intention of alerting the authorities, when Denise told her sister what happened, she forced Denise to call the police. She then made sure Denise followed through and went to the police station to file a report. Denise's brother-in-law happened to be a police officer and he escorted her down to the station himself. When officers arrested Brian, they found bottles of bleach and a tarp in his car, suggesting he had nefarious plans for his soon-to-be ex-wife. Brian was charged with kidnapping, domestic assault, and burglary. He faced life in prison. So a day after Brian was sentenced, officially, he held a surprise news conference. 17 years after disappearing, Mike's body had been found. This is kind of where you come into this, right? This is right where I come into this. The kidnapping occurred. There was no doubt about it. He jumped up from the back of the car, came into the, you know, the middle seat, held her at gunpoint, drove around town for a while. We tried to get some videos of, those, of it occurring at like Walgreens and CVS, I think. It was odd for her to not talk to her sister every day. Her sister tried calling her in the morning. She didn't answer the phone. So her sister thought something was wrong. She went looking for her. She passed her on a road that she shouldn't be on at that time of day. That's when they interacted. That's when she told her what happened. And that's when they said, they called the cops. Brian got arrested um, for this kidnapping. And the first thing 
every one of us. Somebody needs to sit her down right now. This is now's your chance. If she's going to tell us, tell us now. And that's what we did. And she, I don't know what you're talking about. She came off of nothing. And Brian, he was lawyering up on everything. So we weren't going to get a chance to talk to Brian. His attorney approached our office and he's like, probably something you guys want to know about. What kind of negotiations can we have? The attorney negotiated this case. While they were negotiating a case, there was a, another jailhouse snitch. I hate it. I hate jailhouse snitches. But sometimes they do give you just enough to get you over a hurdle. And in this situation, the jailhouse snitch came over and told us that Brian was recruiting him to go do some things on the outside to create another alibi for the kidnapping, to create stories about Denise, and that he had a cousin that was supposed to meet him and give him money. He identified the cousin at a photo lineup. He described the truck that he was driving. And we hit pause right there. Called in FDLE and the sheriff's office. And like, I think we need to work this a little bit further. It was at that point that the negotiations for the plea started to pick up a little bit more. The agreement was made that you will tell us what you know about a missing person case. That's kind of what we left and everybody knew we were talking about Mike Williams, but we never specifically said we're talking about Mike Williams. The agreement was that we would not seek life in the kidnapping case, and he would tell us what he knew about the disappearance of Mike Williams or the disappearance of this missing person. The day he came over here and sat down in the interview room and sat down face to face, and I'll never forget it. I just looked at him and I was like, This is your story. Tell it. And he goes, Where do you want me to start? From the beginning, that's when he started telling. I, you know, my partner at the time was standing sitting next to me, and it took everything I had, and I said, "Are you listening to this? I don't believe he's telling us this." And I, oh my gosh, so it was still to this day. I, I sit there, and I, I wish I could have seen the look on my face because I know I was trying to keep things together, write little notes down, but not look like I was overly interested in a particular part of the conversation. It was an interesting two plus hours. I mean, that's every investigator's kind of dream, right? That somebody finally just talks and tells you something about a case from 17 years ago. You know, when we went into this, it was a risk of we just entered into a plea negotiation with a homicide suspect that we'll never be able to prosecute. It was a huge risk. And, and I will say John Fuchs, the prosecutor on it, I think he's the only one in the office that would have made the decision to do what he did. He knew what he was getting into in the end. Let's stop here for another break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. So in May of 2018, on the way to pick up her daughter from a birthday dinner, Denise was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. What does all of that mean? First-degree murder. Uh, First-degree murder in the state of Florida can occur a couple ways. One is premeditation. The other is during the commission of a felony. Um, In this situation, we clearly had a premeditated murder. Conspiracy to commit first-degree murder is, it kind of comes with the name. You and I conspire to have somebody killed, whether we do it ourselves or have somebody else do it. That's where you get tied into a conspiracy. An accessory after the fact is anything you did to assist in hiding the homicide, whether it be an actual act or an act of omission, you can still be held accountable for accessory after the fact. And those are all three of the charges of the grand jury in May of 2018. And once that indictment was signed, it becomes an active warrant. And she was located at work, sitting at her desk at Florida State University in the accounting department. And when the police officers walked in, she nonchalant got up, put her hands behind her back, walked out the door. It was not a, what are you here for? What are you doing? Oh my God, I have nothing to do with this. It was like, ah, I mean, as soon as we announced the body was found, I think her gut told her. What is your reaction to somebody who's committed one crime and they're kind of getting themselves off of that crime by admitting to the other crime, but you can't really give them the proper sentence for either, right, at that point? By this point, I was well acquainted with Cheryl, and you knew how much effort she had put into finding her son. And all she wanted was closure. She wanted to know what happened, and we wanted to provide the opportunity for them to have the proper burial and proper services for her son. That was one of the riskiest moves. Uh, I don't think we'll ever have one go down like this again, at least while I'm working. I literally made a deal with the devil. I mean, there was a chance that Brian was going to tell me this was entirely his idea, that Denise Williams had zero to do with this. And we were literally going to let a murderer walk free just to close out this part of, you know, just to close, bring closure for Cheryl to the whole family, everybody that wanted to know, the whole community that was, how did it happen? Who did it? Where did it happen? There's days where I look back and I'm like, God, that is a cold-blooded murderer that sat right next to me and shot his best friend in the face. I can't process that. I don't know that I ever will process that. The way he told the story, it was one of those ones everybody says you have to sit there, you have to be there, and you have to watch him do it, or I can't do it justice. And that was a fear we had headed into trial. Was he going to be able to actually come across and tell the story the same way he did to us? So, Jason, can you tell me what, when Brian did, in fact, sit down and you and your partner were listening to this confession, what did he lay out for you? So he started with the affair. From there, the two started a relationship. I think they went out on a double date one night with both families, and then... He and Denise went back out after Kathy and Mike both left the tire. And that's when it started. It started with a simple kiss. And then that led to the sneaking out. That led to the affair progressing. It led to Brian actually trying to get his wife involved in 
this relationship. And then Denise never tried to bring Mike into it. Hers was, I don't want to be married to Mike anymore, but Denise came from a very religious family. Divorce was not going to happen in this household. I think her having to go tell her parents she was getting divorced in her mind was worse than having some hurt. It's the only thing I can make it make sense. So the two of them start discussing plans on how to murder Mike. And Denise says, well, we're going to get rid of Mike. You got to do something about Kathy. And he can make you get married. And there was a plan to all go boat riding one day. And the two of them all over the Denise and Brian stay on the boat and survive. And Brian's like, I don't know. I guess he does have something. And the idea of the duck hunting came up. He said, let's take him duck hunting. We push him overboard. He will drown in his waders. I will come home. Nobody will ever know. It will be an accident. Here's a portion of Brian's confession and his proffer statement. State Attorney's Office. Um, we're here to take a proffer from uh, Brian Winchester. We launched the boat. It was just like a hunting trip was supposed to be. The plan, the plan that was discussed and come up with was that he was going to be wearing waders. And the belief was somebody falls in the water with waders, you're going down. So we went out like we were going hunting. We got to the area where his waders and jacket were found. I got him to stand up and I pushed him into the water. He got his jacket off and his waders off. And he was in a panic, obviously. I was in a panic. I was driving the boat and I, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. And I ended up shooting him. About two weeks before this actually occurred, Brian and Mike were going to go duck hunting because it was when it was supposed to happen. And Denise said, no, I can't do it. I can't stop. Fast forward to the week before the murder. Their anniversary is coming up. Brian tells us that there's the thought of Denise and Mike having to go on a trip together, spend a weekend together, and try to make a kid. It's just, she didn't want anything to do with it. And she said, it's got to happen. I don't want to go on a trip together. So they got approval for him each each other. Mike would check with Denise, hey, can I go hunting with Brian before we go on our, on our anniversary trip? And she's like, of course. So Brian has Mike meet him at a store where they would normally ride together and made them drive separate But he also didn't bring a cell phone with him, so there was no way for them to communicate. But they drive to Lake Seminole and uh, they get in the water and they go hunting. They get out on the boat. Brian pushes Mike over and Mike doesn't sink. Mike doesn't drown. And when Brian circled him a few times with the boat and Mike was trying to swim over to him. Mike actually found a stump, grabbed hold of the stump, and Brian pulled up to him and shot him straight in the face. It was then that Brian realized, I can't leave him here. I have to take him with me. So Brian essentially drags him next to the boat, which is when the waders came off of the body. They just took the boat drug, waders came off. Brian gets him to shore puts him in the back of his truck, partially in a dog kennel that Brian had in the back of the Suburban. He moves Mike's truck to a boat landing, a different boat landing, and then he walks back to his truck and leaves the area. Brian actually went home, got in bed, went back to sleep, and then later that day goes to Walmart and grabs a cart, Grabs a weight, grabs a shovel, and a bunch of cleaning supplies to take Mike. It's crazy. Mike's body is still in the back of the suburban while he is inside his house, sleeping next to his wife, who has no idea what's going on. 
to going to Walmart. He decides to drive to another lake here in Tallahassee. He went home, cleaned out his truck, and went on the search party out to Lake Seminole. And he spent the next several weeks trying to help with the search. And I remember him telling us that, you know, He's pretty sure Denise's sister knew something was wrong. And at one point, I do remember looking at Brian and I was like, I feel like you're minimizing Denise's involvement. And he says, no, I'm really not. I said, does Denise know how he died? And she said, no. As far as Denise was concerned, he died because I pushed him overboard. He drowned. It wasn't until after the proper with Brian that the whole world found out that she shot his best friend. He took you guys out to where he buried him, right? We asked him, you think you can take us to him? We had to corroborate the story, too. I still needed a body to prove that he wasn't lying to us at this point. He's lied for 16 years. Why not? What's another day? We drove him just out of the courthouse. Myself, his attorney, and the other investigator, we put Brian in the front seat with me. We drove down the road. So we drove up Meridian Road, went to Gardner Landing, down at the end of the road. It goes from pavement down to this little dirt mud pit almost. He's like, Ugh. all right, let's get out right here. He gets out of the car and he starts looking around. He said, you know what? It's going to be right in this area. And we're like, well, how can you tell? Because there was three trees and we described the trees. And at that point, we stopped everything, took him back, and this is where, I can't believe this didn't get out. Uh, we drafted a search warrant, got a search warrant for the property, and actually grabbed Leon County's road maintenance crew with some excavators and tractors and made them sign waivers that said, you're not going to tell anybody you're here because you don't know what to do. They started digging and digging and digging, and they went inch by inch with moving dirt moving there and moving there. I got ahead of myself because they brought in cadaver dogs prior to this and the cadaver dogs alerted in that area. So after digging for about a week with 24 hour surveillance and 24 hour pumps keeping water out of the area, one of the excavators hooked the edge of the park and it pulled it up just briefly. And I think at that point they realized what they were there for. And one of the guys actually took off running. He didn't want anything to do with it. He said, no, that's, he's pulling a body out of the ground. It was the last day. We were done. We were, we were ending this search. We weren't going to dig anymore. We were going to call the bluff and be like, you're full of crap. Good try. And we offered the ads off the table. Sure enough, everything we found was exactly how it was described. And he had the bullet wound too, right? In the skull. Yes, you can tell it was shot with a shotgun. You finally found Mike, and you were going to not only be able to give Cheryl closure for a case, right? At least now she can bury her son and know exactly what happened. Yes, that's what we were able to do. It was closure for a lot of people. We actually told Denise and Cheryl at the same time. We took two separate groups. One went to Cheryl's house, one went to Denise's house. The victim's advocate that went to Denise's house she describes it. She wasn't shocked. She wasn't sad. She was like, you know, okay. Not where, not how, but we finally had the closure that she deserved. Cheryl in particular, because she didn't give up. Had she not walked the streets, wrote, written those letters, and literally been a nuisance, we wouldn't be here. But there's a sense of relief for her. Now we can move on to a new chapter. And she said that actually. And now we can move on to a new chapter. We can fight another fight, whatever it may be. Despite proclaiming her innocence, after just eight hours of deliberation, Denise was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to life in prison. For kidnapping Denise, Brian was sentenced to 20 years in prison. In January 2020, Denise appealed her conviction and life sentence. Her attorney argued that there was no evidence she was involved in the murder. And while the murder conviction was in fact overturned, the conspiracy to commit murder conviction was upheld, which included the 30-year sentence that accompanied it. 
Denise remains behind bars. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. Season three of the Piketon Massacre, Return to Pike County is in the works. We wanna hear from you for the upcoming season. Do you have a story to tell, a connection to Pike County, or is there another case local to Pike County that you can't let go of? Please email info at kt-studios.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at kt underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.